The next lecture in this series is on Monday, the 24th of November, and our speaker will be Nicholas Pickwode, who is advisor for conservation to the National Trust in England and also advisor to Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, for various of its ancient collections, and a member of the Rare Book School 19. 87 faculty, he'll be teaching bookbinding from 1500 to 1800 uh, in two separate sections in next July. He'll be speaking on the subject More Stately Mansions, the title being caused by the fact that he spoke here two years ago on Stately Mansions. The problems are, as you all know, not problems, opportunities and challenges of dealing with books in the National Trust Homes in England. That's Monday the 24th at 6th. Our lecture this evening is uh, no stranger to these shores either. Douglas Bryant has spoken from this podium on the National Trust, on the American Trust, excuse me, for the British Library, which he was instrumental in founding. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him back here as always, Mr. Bryant. Thank you, Terry. It is always a pleasure to come back to these halls where I've been in and out of for something over 30 years, and it's a great pleasure to be here tonight and speak about the uh, progress, uh, the history, and, and uh, some of the progress of the American Trust for the British Library. The American Trust for the British Library, founded in 1979, continues a British Library Association with the United States that was established 134 years earlier. In the year 1845, an historic transatlantic partnership began when Henry Stevens, an energetic and able young bookseller and bibliographer from Vermont, called on Antonio, later Sir Anthony Panizzi, then keeper of printed books in the British Library, later, of course, to become principal librarian of the museum. Uh, Stevens, who was an established authority on American books and manuscripts, had come to London to set up trade as an antiquarian book dealer. He came with purchasing commissions from such notable American collectors as James Lennox, John Carter Brown, and also from several American state historical societies who were eager to augment their archives. Soon after his arrival, uh, Stevens... Excuse me. Soon after his arrival, Stevens had undertaken an exercise for his own interest, although surely with an eye to the future, to survey closely the British Museum's collections of Americana, which in 1845 comprised about 4,000 volumes. He had earlier, a year or two before, done much the same thing in the Harvard Library, and this was a, a, a repeat of, the, of that kind of performance of surveying a library for its American imprints. Stephen's early education and background had equipped him well for this task. His father, Henry Stephen Sr., was a prominent figure in the early life of the young republic and a man with an intense and informed interest in history and literature and public affairs, an interest he passed on to each of his ten children. When, in 1870, 5,000 volumes of the Elder Stevens collection of books and manuscripts on the history and literature of both North and South America were auctioned, his son and namesake contributed to the sale catalog a vivid sketch of his father, 
a sketch that was as revealing of the Son as of the Father. And I'm now quoting. This is Stevens, Jr. Leaving the Academy at the age of 12 in 1803, with only a taste of books, and as he expressed it, graduating at Nature's University, he became a self-taught man, an antiquarian and a book collector. His house was the resort of the intelligent. He was a collector and reader of newspapers, a hoarder of pamphlets, and a gatherer of the unconsidered trifles of the day. He contended that Vermont should be manured all over with schoolhouses. From such a cultural environment, it was thus no surprise that Henry Stevens, Jr., should attend both Harvard and Yale and should make antiquarianism his life work. When young Stevens and Panizzi met, a warm mutual regard developed immediately, each recognizing in the other a kindred spirit with a similar understanding of the requirements of scholarship and cultivated learning. Moreover, they shared an ambitious vision of the future, for Panizzi had recently issued what amounted to a cultural manifesto calling for the creation of an encyclopedic national reference library. Quote, a public library giving the necessary means of information on all branches of human learning from all countries in all languages. That's the end of the quote. Panizzi's boldness of imagination was matched by a canniness in the ways of administration, with the result that in January 1846, just four months after Stevens had arrived, you'll recall, the museum received from the Treasury the first in a series of special annual grants of 10,000 pounds, a phenomenal subject for the period. The grants were used largely for the acquisition of foreign and antiquarian materials and were to continue without interruption for the next 40 years. Stevens was summoned at once and Panizzi was able to instruct him, quote, to sweep America for us as, as you have done London for America. More particularly, in a letter to Jared Sparks of the 27th of March, 1846, Stevens reports that Panizzi had charged him to ascertain what books they have relating to America and what American literature they have, and then to furnish them with everything they have not, e.g., all historical works, general and local, even to all the little histories of churches and parishes, all school books, theology, science, belles-lettres, reports, laws, all public documents of general government, as well as those of individual states, all periodical literature, topography, Indians, etc. In short, all American books of all kinds. Stevens goes on to say, the expenses will be enormous, and of this the trustees are aware. I trust such a collection of American literature will do more to soften down the prejudices of John Bull against America and facilitate his return to modesty than all the swaggering in Congress about Oregon the last dozen years. Far in advance of most of his contemporaries, a notable exception being John Langdon Sid Sid Sibley, the great 19th century librarian of Harvard, Panizzi even recognized the importance of newspapers in historical study, and files of these were added to Stevens' charge. Stevens accepted the commission with characteristic enthusiasm, even managing to persuade the United States government to present to the British Museum all its official publications as a forerunner 
to an official exchange agreement reached in 1883 between Britain and the United States for a full exchange of government publications between the two nations. In fact, so diligent and thorough was Stevens that it is fair to assume that a large proportion of the special treasury grants went for Americana. By the end of 1846, his first year of operation, for example, Stevens had sold 10,000 American books to the British Museum. Twenty years later, by the middle of 1866, when Panizzi retired, Stevens had placed more than 100,000 volumes in the museum's collections. After another 20 years, in 1886, just before the treasury grants in the museum were radically cut, Henry Stevens was able to state without fear of challenge that, quote, the library of the British Museum contains today probably the largest and best collection in existence of American history and literature. These 40 years of prodigious growth in the British Museum Library's American collections were followed by a long, slow decline. A certain number of acquisitions were added as a result of copyright deposit of American books that were published in Britain. But the range and the variety of American publishing was far larger than could be covered satisfactorily by a combination of this means and the museum's reduced budget for foreign acquisitions. The collection suffered further losses when in a World War II bomb attack, one of the museum's four main book stacks was hit directly and nearly 250,000 books, including 11,000 volumes of American publications, were lost to fire and water. After the end of the war, a new scholarly discipline gradually emerged in Britain and within a decade, it began to gain momentum. The field of American studies not only acquired intellectual respectability, but steadily attracted increasing numbers of students and scholars. Quite suddenly, as a corollary, the richness and comprehensiveness of the American collections in the British Museum Library came to take on greater significance and value as it appeared evident that Britain, for many reasons, would become the preeminent center for American studies outside the United States itself. But there were other, more pressing matters to be resolved before the collection's richness could be adequately capitalized upon. In June of 1969, a development of profound importance to Britain's intellectual and cultural history occurred when the report of the National Libraries Committee, a committee that had been chaired by Dr. Frederick Dayton, was presented to Parliament. The report recommended the amalgamation of five existing libraries, including the British Museum Library, with the British National Bibliography and the Office for Scientific and Technical Information, which was in the Department of uh, Science and Education. This new national institution, to be known as the British Library, would be governed by an independent board. And I might say parenthetically that one of the interesting inventions when that board was created was that for the first time in, in Britain, surely, perhaps elsewhere, uh, the, the four chief operating officers, indeed the five chief operating officers in the British Museum were also members of the governing board. This was a device that had not therefore been tried in Britain, and uh, so far as I can tell, it has worked extremely well. Parliament accepted the recommendations, 
and the new British Library came into full-fledged independent existence in 1973. Its first chairman was the well-known bibliophile, former chairman of the British Museum and former minister for education, the Viscount Eccles. In the years since World War II, the library has been greatly concerned to strengthen and rebuild its American holdings and to do so on a systematic basis, a concern that Lord Eccles supported strongly. The period most in need of buttressing was the 70, year, 70 years between 1880 and 1950. In 1978, Lord Eccles, who was abundantly aware of the serious shortcomings in the library's holdings of American publications of these years, met with an old friend, Arthur A. Houghton, Jr., a noted American collector of English literature and an unfailingly supporter of library and bibliographic enterprises. Their discussions led to an informal conference held in December of that year at Y Plantation, Mr. Houghton's home in Maryland. The participants were Mr. Houghton, Lord Eccles, Sir Harry Hookway, Vice Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the British Library at the time, Donovan T. Richnell, Director General of the Reference Division of the British Library, and the Reference Division in rough terms uh, was the, uh, that part of the British Library that was the former British Museum Library. Ian Willison, who was in charge of American acquisitions in the library, James Nelson of the Y Institute, and I. The conference extended over two days and resulted in an agreement to establish the American Trust for the British Library, which would have as its primary purpose the augmentation of the American collections in the British Library. Five million dollars was to be raised as an initial objective for the purchase of the resources for research in American studies that were needed to redress the weaknesses which had developed through the 70 years from the 1880s to the 1950s. With characteristic understanding and generosity, Arthur Houghton underwrote the administrative costs of launching the trust and sustaining it through its organizational period. Equally generous with his time and experience, he agreed to act as the trust's first chairman. A new chapter was opening in the transatlantic partnership undertaken so successfully by Panizzi and Stevens 133 years before. In April of 1979, the trust was incorporated as a tax-exempt organization. Its active operation began in August with myself as founding trustee and executive director. A board of 10 trustees from both sides of the Atlantic and an active advisory council of 28 eminent American and British scholars and others with a particular interest in British-American cultural relations composed the formal structure of the trust. And happily, since its founding, more than a thousand annual subscriptions have been received from associates and affiliates of the trust. <coughs> Excuse me. By the time the trust was officially launched, Sir Frederick Dayton, who had been chairman of the uh, uh, British Library Committee, you recall, and now Lord Dayton, had succeeded the Viscount Eccles as chairman of the British Library Board. Early in his tenure, 53,000 pounds was a grant was made to the British Library by the Leverhulme Trust in London. 
purpose of this grant was to support the preliminary bibliographic work needed to identify essential Americana to be acquired under the aegis of the trust. It was an auspicious beginning to a fund drive which has since raised over $2 million from individuals and general and corporate foundations, both in this country and Britain, to advance the work of the trust. In its first seven and a half years of active operation, the American Trust for the British Library has provided substantial expansion of United States publications in the British Library. Research materials already purchased by the Trust include microfilm files of 150 general periodicals and 435 specialized journals in the fields of religious history, Judaica, and medicine. I may say that the reason the early concentration was on those three fields is the quite pragmatic one. That is where a good deal of the early money came from, restricted to the purchase of materials in those three fields. Files of six metropolitan newspapers, and, and among these are the, the Richmond uh, Dispatch, the Louisville uh, Courier General, and a variety of other major papers throughout the country. Uh, six metropolitan newspapers have been acquired, as have two prominent black newspapers from New York and Chicago. Several large microfilm collections have been purchased, including 2,100 volumes of county and regional histories and atlases, city directories from 1882 to 1901, United States census records, and five massive files of World War II records from the United States National Archives. In addition, a substantial number of American literary works have been acquired in their original first editions. Work on replacing the publications that were lost in World War II uh, has proceeded steadily under a special project managed by the Trust through arrangements with the New York Public Library, the Library of Congress, and Harvard. Thus far, 3,500 of the 6,000 volumes still missing of American publications when we began this have now been replaced in microform by the Trust. I hope it goes without saying that the responsibility for selecting books and materials to be acquired by the Trust rests with the curators and the librarians in the British Library. From the outset, it has of course been clear that this group could not be expected to include specialists in every aspect of American life between 1880 and 1950. How then to assist the members of the library staff in this huge task of retrospective collection building? The answer has been the establishment of a program for compiling highly selective subject bibliographies of books, journals, and where applicable newspapers published in the United States during the 70 years in which the trust is active. These lists of research materials in 49 fields of American studies range from fine arts to chemistry, from military history to immigration, from economics to philosophy. Typically, each bibliography includes from 1,500 to 2,000 titles, although some run to as many as 4,000, and they are being prepared by American and British specialists working in universities from Hawaii to the London School of Economics. Two, as a matter of fact, are being uh, compiled here, in, indeed three are being compiled here at Columbia. The discovery of scholars competent to compile each of these bibliographies has been an arduous undertaking extending over many, many months. 
all have by now been commissioned, and 19 have been sent already to the British Library. In each case, the lists are checked against the library's several catalogs to avoid duplication and are then further considered by the staff and any specialists whom the library wishes to call upon. This procedure leads to the preparation of lists of specific acquisitions which are then sent to the Library of Congress as firm orders for microfilming. One may ask why this lengthy, complex, and extensive effort is needed to strengthen the British Library's American holdings. Broad coverage is essential if the American collections in the British Library are to keep pace with the very wide requirements of scholars working on research in the fields of American studies in Britain. It is a field which has had a protracted struggle to establish itself on the British academic landscape. As long ago as the mid-19th century, the noted historian Charles Kingsley tried to persuade the University of Cambridge to found a lectureship in American history. He was unsuccessful, but academic life seldom accepts innovation at first offer. After the Second World War, however, the University of Manchester established in 1948 the first regular chair in American studies in the United Kingdom. Since that time, interest in the field has spurted ahead, as is indicated by the growth in the number of scholars and other specialists devoted to matters American. Although, for example, the mid-1950s were in the mid-1950s, there were still only 60 members of academic faculties teaching any American subjects in the United Kingdom, and most of these courses were taught in addition to their regular work. By 1984, the number had grown to 415. By 1984 also, there were 294 academic librarians working with American bibliography and publications. And the British Association for American Studies had become a thriving nationwide professional organization of 500 members publishing the very important Journal of American Studies. All of this growth has put increasing responsibility on the British Library's American collections, which are the largest single resource throughout the United Kingdom for research in American studies. It has made the work of the Trust even more opportune, for as Charlotte Erickson, the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge and past chairman of the British Association for American Studies has written, I quote, the strengthening of the British Library's American holdings will make it possible to do more serious and original research in this country. It will be a godsend to teachers unable to get away who nevertheless are trying to keep research and knowledge moving forward. The aims and activities of the American Trust for the British Library demonstrate an extraordinary degree of generosity and vision, to say the least. The support for it in the United States has been encouraging and heartening not only for the British Library, but for all scholars concerned with the United States in this country, as well as many from the continent of Europe. In addition to improving the resources for researchers in the UK, the work of the American Trust has two significant consequences that supplement its primary purpose. A notably valuable aspect of the Trust's activity is the reciprocal service the Trust is performing for American research libraries as a byproduct of its efforts in behalf of the British Library. 
as in several other Western countries, and no one in this room is not aware of this, for some years a vast national effort has been underway in the United States to rescue from oblivion the millions of volumes that were printed in the last century and a half on paper that is steadily deteriorating. Since a very large portion of the books and other printed matter the Trust is obtaining for the British Library can be provided only in facsimile, mainly microform, many works which might otherwise be lost are being retrieved for future generations of scholars and readers. In a simple but highly effective system, the master negatives of works ordered by the Trust for the British Library remain in the American Library that owns the work, while a microform positive print goes to the British Library. As a result, then, appropriate bibliographic entries become part of the United States National Database of Materials copied for preservation purposes. Thereafter, copies of such works may be ordered by research libraries anywhere in the United States or elsewhere throughout the world, for that matter. And I, I should say parenthetically that as, uh, as things have turned out, the very large percentage, indeed it's above 80%, of all the microfilm we are currently having done is being done in the Library of Congress under special arrangements that have been made with the library, and I cannot speak too highly of the efficiency with which uh, they're carrying out this uh, really very large undertaking. Another element in making the Trust's work a true partnership between Britain and America is its catalytic effect on the holdings of American serial publications in the British Library. <coughs> As the Trust supplies to the library microform files of newspapers and journals falling within the 1880-1950 period, <coughs> excuse me, the library itself purchases the remainder of the files, those issues published before 1880 or after 1950, in order to make the scholarly record complete. The growth of the American holdings emphasizes the long-standing need of the British Library for immensely larger quarters in order to bring together library departments and book collections from 20-odd buildings scattered over Greater London. Though plans for a new building go back more than three decades, it was only in 1980 that the government decided to proceed with the new building for the National Library. It was the only, the only public building that's been authorized in the present uh, uh, government of, uh, in Britain. Construction began in a year and a half, and on 7 December 1982, the Prince of Wales unveiled the building's foundation stone. When the library is completed, it will be one of the largest public buildings in Britain. The nation's tribute to the importance of the uses of history and the availability of the historical record for generations to come. Equally important, the building will house one of the world's greatest collections of books and manuscripts from every age and in every language, with the entire assemblage under one roof, just as in Panizzi's day. Even when the new British Library building is complete, and that will be well after the turn of the century, all the collections installed in their new quarters, the work of the American Trust for the British Library will continue. The Trust's charter was very broadly drawn by its founders in the expectation that the transatlantic partnership it represents will become ever more significant in decades to come. Collaboration with the British Library may in the future extend over a variety of joint activities, 
all turning on encouraging the widest possible use of the American collections. Provisions could be made for uh, ex uh, uh, scholarships and fellowships for the exchange of, of students and scholars from one side to the other and for publications, the holding of conferences and so on. It is a very widely drawn uh, charter. It may take many forms, but its essential purpose could perhaps be taken from John Adams, America's first ambassador to the Court of St. James's, who wrote, Let us tenderly and kindly cherish, therefore, the means of knowledge. Let us dare to read, think, speak, and write. In a word, let every sluice of knowledge be opened and set aflowing. I thank you. And I wonder if there are any questions that you'd like to raise with me about the trust. That's true. Do you see it as a grim comment? Well, yes, I think that I think that it, that is true. But but also you, they're reciprocal, because think of the British, the British scholars who have to come here. Certainly, that's the thousand associates. Yes, exactly. Yes, it has. I don't see it as grim, though, Terry. This. Because they are all in one place. That, that that's, and that's not quite true of the Library of Congress, for example. It's a, a different. to my slideshow, uh, which is our several slides uh, having to do with the new building which is being built. And uh, as I say, it's been under construction now for about four years. And the, the uh, um, I, I must, I think, apologize because the, the slides which I'm going to show you are literally arrived this morning from London, and uh, I hope that uh, they will operate as they're supposed to do. The... Yes. No, one has to have a reader's ticket in 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 the main in the main reading room of the British Museum, and but the the, the British or the uh, reader's tickets, as they're called, are are uh, uh, generously provided. Now, any associate of the American Trust, which which one may be for as little as fifty dollars a year, automatically gets a reader's ticket. Otherwise, it involves an introductory letter from one's own librarian or something of that sort, or or one's professor. But they're not difficult. But it is a formality that, that has to be gone through. Um, but once one has the real ticket, then one has access to the to the whole of the library. Yes. Well, let me speak briefly about uh, some of the features of this uh, of this new uh, British Museum Library, which 
Now, this is where the experiment begins. You see, it worked. The, the site, which is, you see, roughly triangular, is in the Euston Road in London, for those of you who know London. And the Euston Road is this street on the bottom where there's a bus. And the site is, as I say, roughly triangular with the narrow uh, part of the triangle on the Euston Road. And then it broadens as it goes back. The site is about nine and a half acres. The building on the lower right, which extends all along the, the right side, is the St. Pancras Station, that phenomenally elaborate uh, uh, Victorian railway station by Giles Scott. And um, a major feature in the, in the design of the new building was that the, the St. Pancras building, which is rather tall at the tower, you see, had to be left visible. The, on the left side, <coughs> along the side street in, in Lavender, is a an interesting group of council flats which were built in the early or mid-twenties, uh, and they, they do suggest uh, uh, much uh, uh, lower-income housing in Vienna of that period. They're, they're not unattractive. They're only about, as I recall, five or six floors high, if that, and they are not an intrusion at all. In the Between the flats and the Euston Road on that side is the Shaw Theater. Now, you'll see these various numbers on the parts of the building. The, because the building will take upwards of 30 years to build, owing to the expense, the, the expense of the whole thing, not to say extremely difficult engineering, it was, the design was based from the outset on the principle that it would be built, that the building would be built in a series of entities and that at the conclusion of each entity, if the money were no longer available to go on directly, one would have a usable uh, uh, portion of the whole already, so that the, the services of uh, air conditioning, electricity, elevators, all of these uh, central facilities, if you like, are so placed that they are included in each of the segments. Now, the government so far has assured, the, uh, re released the money to build all of what's in blue. That is 1A, 1AA, and 1AB. Now, the first, the, the immediate, uh, right on the Euston Road, in the blue now, I'm talking about the building on the right, will be a large and, and uh, uh, excellent auditorium. Behind that, the whole of that range running right up through 2B will be the science and technical information departments of the library with the very large uh, science and, uh, and technology reading rooms in that portion of the building. In the 1A and 1AA uh, building uh, to the left, the darker blue, this will house the humanities uh, divisions, including rare books, the Old North Library and its collections, uh, uh, and uh, the beginning of the humanities collections. Now, I should say that underground, in the, in, under all the blue part, and extending back through a good deal of the other, there will be four underground levels. And bear in mind the size of this site. There will be very, very large underground uh, stack levels, which will, and in the northern part of the, of the site, the, the, what's orange and so on, will be uh, three floors underground. Now, the engineering is complicated because under the site, under the building, go four uh, uh, underground railway lines that is two lines with the two tubes for each direction they, the two lines the two tubes in both lines are neither parallel 
nor on the same height uh, depth. It, it is it's a it's a, a nightmare of an engineering problem. Uh, furthermore, the excavation cannot be done in the normal way of starting at the bottom or digging a great hole and then building up, because this would cause the the four railway lines to float, because they're held down by the weight of the structure of the of the earth you see on top. So that the excavation is having to be done in a, a very costly way, but it was that or nothing of digging down one floor, building that floor in, going down another floor, and digging the, the, the refuse to come out through the holes in the, in the floor, and so on down four times. It, it, it is a vastly expensive uh, undertaking. Now, initially, to, before anything else could be done, the entire site had to be uh, surrounded by uh, what's called, it's really a bearing wall, which goes down uh, in the order of uh, 50, no, it's more than that, it goes down about 100 feet, and this is, uh, was designed by Italian engineers and it was completed in, in about two years' time. It was the first thing so that everything that goes on now is inside this uh, odd box, if you like. And all of this was to prevent floating. And prevent, it's a clay uh, uh, soil here and prevent it shifting, which I, I'm, I'm told clay is, is want to do. So this is the ultimate building, which would be completed uh, not long after the, after the turn of the century. The, to give you an idea of the size of it, the floor space will be between 45 and 50 acres. And it is said it may be the largest building ever built in Britain in terms of floor space, and I dare say it well may be. Uh, the, the construction so far is, uh, that's been assured financially is the, are the two blue levels, uh, the two blue parts in, in the front, with this very large forecourt, as you see on, on the left. Now this is a, a, a obviously an aerial photograph of the model, and you see the the step down portion over the science and technology uh, is to allow the the, the view of St. Pancras Station, which is on its right from our point of view, and the the uh, slanted portion over the humanities reading rooms and so on uh, is also to keep the, the height from being too great toward the front of the building. Now, this model is only of what was blue on the first, so that it extends back uh, really three times this far. But this is the model of what has so far been, been authorized and, and is under construction. That's, that's the view uh, looking eastward on the Euston Road, as it will be when completed. The white building on the left is the, the Shaw Theater. The you see just beyond it a, uh, what looks like a little box, I must say. That's the arch through which one will enter that forecourt. And the pink uh, with a slanting roof uh, beyond that is the auditorium. And, of course, beyond that, the, the Simpancus uh, railway station. This is the entrance hall uh, looking toward... Let me just check this... This is looking toward the exhibition galleries with the entrance on the left. Yes, one will have entered it from the left and uh, uh, proceed into whatever department. Technology and science will be behind us here and humanities uh, in the direction we're facing. This is the entrance hall looking from one of the balconies we just saw toward the entrance. The entrance is, uh, as you see there, in, in, in the middle. This is a science reference and uh, information um, reading room, which is practically all open stack. 
the, the collections are, are above ground here almost entirely and uh, the readers of the, uh, the of science and technology collections have access to all of these balconies where the, where the uh, uh, collections are with obviously reference materials on the bottom, on the bottom level. This is, uh, will be one of the humanities reading rooms, typical of, of the several that will be. And these, you see, will have the collections largely underground in, in, uh, in a closed stack arrangement as, as now. And this is uh, a scene which, uh, which would be in the exhibition halls, uh, which are in the front of the building and in the part that is, is already uh, financed. Uh, has financial assurance but the exhibition for both permanent and uh, changing exhibitions uh, the, the space is very very large indeed now that's the humanities side of the building the one is standing here under the overhang from the auditorium in the front looking across the forecourt toward the humanities departments and this is uh, standing in the street uh, looking into across the forecourt toward and all this on the right and the, the brick is um, is the science and technology behind the auditorium and that is the entrance hall the entrance arch that box as I called it earlier on is through that arch there this is a scene of the uh, the early the, the the Italian peripheral wall is constructed here and now actual excavation is beginning and that's the way it was, I would say, a year ago. What's happening to the hotel? Don't ask me. It looks like it's being taken apart. It? <laughs> yes, well, it isn't. It's there. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that, Terry, though. You're right. Something's funny. And this is as it was uh, when I last saw it in June, I think. Uh, and I actually went down one level. There's the hotel. It looks better. <laughs> But the, the whole construction is, is so complex and, and the size is so great that I think it's easy to understand why it will take uh, as many years as it will to complete, even though we know that uh, British construction is very slow indeed. But it is, it's a fascinating enterprise, certainly, and uh, one which uh, will produce a very great library. I think there's... Well, thank you very much indeed. That's...